This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. This week, taking on racism in corporate America. Cindy Bright is perhaps best known to listeners to this show as the host of Heartbeat Radio, but she's also a veteran of corporate America, and she's just released a book about her time battling the systemic racism she endured there. The book is full of prescriptives on how we can all work to demand a corporate presence in this country that prioritizes equity. That's next. You may know our friend Cindy Bright as the host of Heartbeat Radio, a weekly show on Rainier Avenue Radio, or you may know her from her TEDx talk or as a speaker and corporate consultant. She was also a candidate for state representative in the 48th Legislative District. But in addition to all that, Cindy is a veteran of corporate America, and she has written a book about her time there and the systemic racism she faced and that women of color continue to face there. And she calls upon all of us, especially white people, to do the work to change this. Her book is called The Color of Courage, Crushing Racism in Corporate America. Cindy Bright, hello. How are you, my friend? Hello, Stefan. I am well. How are you? I'm good. Listen, just right off the bat, great book. Um, I I honestly couldn't put it down. You're a natural storyteller and the message just couldn't be more timely right now. Mm, Thank you. I'm I'm getting a lot of good feedback about it. So it's it's cool. But well, as well as well, you should be, and I think it's it, it's a required read right right now, and I really do recommend it for folks. And we'll get into the reasons why. Um, and I think the the place that I'd like to start is uh, your story of life in corporate America, which is where you start the book. And I'll just ask you, why were you drawn to work in corporate America? Yeah, you know, Stefan, I wouldn't say I was drawn to work in corporate America. Um, it so happened that I got a job in corporate America uh, after being transferred here. Uh, by the Department of the Navy. So I was a civilian with the Navy for 13 years. I'm actually originally from the Bay Area. And my then husband in the early 90s and I were transferred here to submarine Base Banger. I had spent 13 years working for the Navy guys. So um, I needed something different after um, being in a, um, it was a labor environment, a very autocratic um, workforce. And so I decided to do something different. And so I fell into corporate America, literally. Well, things take a turn when a, uh, a white woman that you work with, who was a friend of yours, uh, had an affair with the CFO of your company and the affair went bad. You tried to help her out and things ultimately backfired. And, and the book goes into great detail on this, but just tell us a little bit about what happens next. Well, um, there is an inherent conflict. So I was uh, the head of HR for uh, three of the businesses in this firm, uh, this financial services firm. And so there is a direct conflict being in HR, having control over people's jobs and sleeping with the CFO who is handling finances for the company. And so that's an issue of ethics. And so um, the conflict and ethics around it drove ethics hotline complaints coming in from people in the organization. And as an HR leader, I had a responsibility to deal with those issues and it involved my then friend. And so it went sour or south because I personally got put in a position of lose-lose. I have to take it forward to our joint boss, uh, who is the global head of HR in New York City, of which I did and of which she was trying to help my friend not get caught up in the typical woman takes the fall for the man's 
um, behaviors too. And so that's how it started. And it unraveled from there because my then friend um, behaved, I mean, she is a Karen. So, you know, Karen wasn't the popular term back then, but what happens when a white woman is called to the carpet or called uh, to be held accountable and other women are trying to help her and then she ends up turning on us so that she could get her man. And she is in fact married to him right now. Mm -hmm. So this is the takedown in corporate America of when, um, you know, uh, um, when I stood up and had to deal with it. So, and the only option I had was to not deal with it. And I would still have lost my job because I would have not been dealing with the ethics of the company and people, uh, you know, my position was too um, senior and too visible uh, to not be, do something about it. So that's kind of what went down there. And it, it just puts you in a hell of a bind. And, and you, you write about it uh, with, with great clarity in the book. You sued for discrimination um, and won, but you were unable to get rehired anywhere afterwards, right? Well, I didn't choose to get rehired. I have not looked for work. Um, I made a decision that I'd had enough because at that time I was 50 years old. So that, um, that was seven years ago. And I had spent three decades and in every company I was in there as an HR person, uh, a black woman, HR person, the, the drama, the double standards, the fight for equal pay, the, you know, I just had had enough. And so I just decided this time it was different. And mostly because they were severancing out all of the white people, every one of them, all of their severance packages were paraded in front of the jury, in front of the judge. And the judge was basically like WTF, right? Like, why did you not give her a package too? And, you know, it could have been a very easy transition out if they would treat me the way they treat them, but that's not what they do to black people. And certainly not what they do to a black woman who has stood up for herself um, they put me in the same category as Karen in Central Park, which is, you know, she in the park calls 911. What they do in corporate America is the 911 system. I talk about this in my book is they start taking you on for performance and digging up your life history. You know, my trial, they paraded um, my entire 50 years of life, my mental health, my sex life, my relationships. They stopped at nothing to destroy me. And so that's what they do. And um, and I'm not the first. Most people, they settle out. I'm just a person that wouldn't go away. And I'm still not going away, hence this book, and hence me talking to people about what's going on. Well, so let's talk about some of the lessons that you drew from this that are contained within the book that I think are so important to get out there. You say that in order to teach uh, about corporate white supremacy, we have to know what it is and define it. So how do we define it? I mean, you know, corporate white supremacy is all about the systems and processes that are put in place in corporate America to advance and accelerate and protect white people. And so the entire system, I mean, my story, I only told one story and I worked for 30 years. I can tell you a zillion stories. I can tell you about investigating a sexual harassment complaint with somebody's daddy who was an executive who was mad because I did not find on behalf of his daughter. I mean, there are a zillion stories I can tell you because they expect to be protected and not to be held accountable. And for the most part, that is what goes on. They, they're protected. And in my story, they protected the guy. I mean, he, this man, uh, 
I know things about his past also because I had access to information as an HR person. This man, A, should have never been hired as an executive in that firm. But the good old boys culture, the good old boys, they all line up to protect them. And so that is white supremacy culture where it didn't matter, you know, how good of a job I, because I, I was an excellent employee. But the minute I spoke, that's when the white supremacist culture kicked right in and they go line up and protect each other and they all they'll get on the stands they will lie and they will say things that make no sense to protect money and men that's what corporate america is well yeah you you talk about it as as protect thy white man under your 10 rules of uh, the good old boy uh, network you know and and as i'm reading this i i have to say like it just kept occurring to me that, you know, corporate culture is just ruthlessly competitive by nature and that people will use any advantage to get ahead. They will uh, ally with anybody who they feel uh, gives them a greater advantage. I just the, the question kept occurring to me, is corporate culture in some way incompatible with equity? What do you think? You know, when you describe that, isn't that the same system everywhere? Isn't that the political system? that it's infiltrated with nothing but white folks and um, fighting for equity in a system with leadership, quote unquote, that is dominated by one culture, whiteness, one way of thinking, protect thy white man, do not hold them accountable for it. That is the same. So it doesn't matter which system you're talking about, equity and that system are incompatible on the surface because there are not there's not been enough progress in any system and so diversity has been on every ceo's goal since you know look <laughs> for 30 years do they ever meet their goals no I, I talk about in my book the wells fargo ceo who publicly makes the most ridiculous statement about well we just don't have enough people in our candidate pool that is the same statement that the Democrats made about me when I ran for office and said, it's not her turn. It's the same exact system. And so when you talk about the political side to it, I've paid my dues just because I haven't come up through your system. I've actually been in the equity space for 57 years now. My opponent had no experience in this area, but the fact that that person is appointed into a seat this is how white people get ahead. So the systems are the same, Stefan, right? So the equitable, the ability to compete, it's why I work so hard to help fight and get brown and black people elected for office because we have to penetrate and infiltrate the systems that are at play so that we have a fighting chance in corporate, in politics, in life, in education, you name it. We're, we're at the disadvantage. This is so much of the cultural conversation right now around when we talk about institutional racism, when we talk about uh, systemic racism, you're getting exactly right to the heart of it. Um, another thing that seems to uh, cross boundaries is, uh, is denial. Um, you talk about when people try to call out, uh, you know, racism in in a corporate setting, they're often punished or they're gaslit and they're told that they're not seeing what they're seeing. And this is something that plays out in a number of different sectors. I wonder if you can talk about and some of the ways that you have seen this play out, both with yourself and with other people. Well, <clears throat> no one wants to talk for some reason when we say white people. It's as if we threw a bomb in front of in somebody's living room. Like no one wants 
to talk about what's really happening. And so I do these experiential things just to watch to see how, as I posted an article the other day, it was a very provocative article about the question you just asked, right? Why, at the core of all of these problems, this is white America, but no, no one wants to talk about it because when we mention it, there is a, um, you know, they go sideways and think that this means all white people. Well, of course I'm not, of course we're not referring to all white people. I mean, when I did my book release and you can read it in my book, did you see how I said my white woman chapter was the hardest chapter for me to write? Because I have to honor the white people that stand with me. And there are a lot of white folks that do, but I'm not talking to them. I'm talking to the percentage of people that are putting Donald Trump in office, the people that are perpetuating hatred towards brown and black people, they're everywhere. And so you can't even talk about it because there's this, you know, fragileness of if we say something, they just can't handle it. And so you could, therein lies the difference between my life and their life, right? I have, This is in my face every single day. I can't walk into the grocery store without a Karen telling me I'm going down the aisle, which in fact happened during the pandemic. This, for our life, is daily. You mentioned a slight hint of something's not right to white people and they go ballistic and want to deflect it and make the issue about me. This is what we have to start talking about. And we've got to get comfortable with the realities of the lives of brown and black people and believe the stories that we're telling you because we're not just concocting this stuff. It is actually happening. And we need the help of white people to deal with your white people. So, so I say this is not a brown or black person to issue to solve, it's white people. And I watch white people deal with it. And it is interesting as hell to watch the people who step into it because you know the pushback is so strong. And I get phone calls and I told somebody last night, anytime you fight for black, you become black. And y'all have no idea what it feels like to be a black person until you say something to defend one and they lash at you like they lash it up. And so that is real talk. <laughs> That's real talk. Yeah. Um, you're talking about these dynamics that, that kind of exist in tension. And, and you do unpack that a lot in the book where you talk about the relationships that, you know, certainly the very toxic relationships that white women have had with black women in corporate America. But you also talk about how this, this I think, was a very interesting point that I wanted to get your take on um, and, and have you unpack a little bit. You say that, um, that uh, white women within corporate culture uh, could and and actually they could benefit by partnering with black women uh, in corporate culture and and really uh, compete maybe on an almost uh, an equal playing field uh, with white men. Can you talk about that a little bit? It is my belief that if white women got their stuff together and started working collectively, where all women are working in the same direction, I am not. I'm this. I, I'm not trying to offend any men who listen to this. But, you know, I've been in boardrooms for a long time. I've sat in lots of meetings. They're not smarter than us. I could tell you a zillion stories about some things that I've had to deal with. Women are stronger, fiercer, can do so much more, think different. They're creative, collective team. Like women could change the world if we could get all the here, here. 
on the same page. And what we have to deal with is not just the performative aspect on it, because there's a lot of white women who will nod their head and go, yeah, you know, but as soon as they have a moment to monetize on our back or take something from us, they do. And an example of that is the Portland moms. I use it in many of my talks. The Portland moms, how they all mobilized to stand up for the black women. Read what happened after that march, when the white women go away and set up a .org and remove the black women. And so this is a black issue. They don't even want to include their black sisters in it because now they're trying to make money off of it. Sheryl Sandberg, I talk about that in my book. You sit here and you talk about if women could do this and if women, we should lean in. Well, hell, if we had uh, Sheryl Sandberg's resources and she fought to help us get equitable pay, we could lean in with her so these we got to get women moving in the same direction and not against each other you met, it's interesting you mentioned Cheryl Sandberg and her and her book because you do talk about that a little bit in your book. Um, you, two things on that. You talk about the percentage of people uh, of color in executive positions being not large, but it's almost non-existent for Black yeah. women. I mean, it's 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 such a small percentage. But you also lay out just what you're talking about here: how corporations often prevent Black professionals and particularly Black women professionals from becoming wealthy, denying mm-hmm. access to stock options, bonuses, promotions motions, things like that. Talk about this practice and and how widespread it is. Yeah, so um, the book is quite detailed. This is the the privilege of being a former HR person uh, who's no longer HR is I don't have to keep these confidence. <laughs> you can let it out of the bag. Um, and I have more that I'm going to tell you, I have more coming because I actually have put together a curriculum because I'm actually going to teach uh, consumers um, how to navigate corporate compensation. So there's more coming on this because I'm equipping people. What I'm talking about in my book is the fact that um, the fight for pay equity um, has only included transparency and salary ranges. And some companies share it and some don't. The salary range is not the issue. It's where the salary level is in comparative to the structure that's in place, provided most major companies have structures in place, and where equity actually begins in these companies. And there's two types of equity programs. So some people will react and say, but we give our employees, no, you're giving them the bottom line 3% of base salary. But this is this is an example to illustrate it. Black people are 60 cents to the dollar. So you're already 37 to 40% uh, behind market. And what I talk about in my book is how the structure moves year to year. And if your salary is 30% below and you have a retirement plan and you're not getting any equity and you have a retirement plan and your match, it, you're not even able to maximize how much money you put in your retirement plans. White men have made it so that white men are getting all of the top equity and the bonus structures and equity pools are 50, 55, 100% of base and bonus. There's multipliers. They have special employee retirement systems so they get a whole separate pension. They set up change and control agreements, which are uh, legal documents that 
negotiate their exits when they come in. And so I'm calling for a freaking revolution on that because if they start putting changing control agreements for black people, then keeping us off the social systems and helping us to be able to get back on our feet again, we want, I'm fighting for the same access. This is racism. Access and um, is about racism and they've kept all of that earning power to predominantly white men. This kind of harks back to the point that I was driving at earlier, which is that corporate culture does seem, because it's so competitive and because it does seem very, uh, people are trying to sort of take care of themselves and take care of what they perceive to be as their own, uh, that these sorts of systems are not only uh, put in place, but also stay in place. Mm -hmm. um, I'd love to get into some solutions that you talk about into the book. Uh, you, you see, one of the places to start is by challenging our own unspoken biases, and that is a very hard thing for white people to confront. So I'll just ask you, what are some of the sorts of questions that we should ask ourselves about our own implicit biases? I, I'm, at a basic level, why am I reacting this way inside? I mean... When you hear me speak, what do you what what's happening to you? Right? When I'm fiery, I'm passionate, you know, I'm direct and candid about when I talk about this issue, what kind of reaction are you having inside and why? That's at a basic level. If you are reacting to it, then I'm challenging you to question what is it about me that is and what I'm saying, why is that triggering you? Is so it, you're saying for people who are triggered and threatened by that, when I hear you, I, I get kind of charged up because <laughs> I find you very inspiring. But you're talking about people who who would be threatened by, uh, I want to say, a, a very uh, assertive and powerful speaker. And, and you know, I've been told my entire career it's my presence. Like people say when you walk in a room, Cindy, you know, there's something about you command presence, da, 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 uh, all of that. But I've worked so hard um, unfairly to diffuse uncomfortableness with me when I'm in rooms, when I was in corporate America, because I know that people had such strong reactions to me, particularly white women. White men didn't have the problems. In fact, white men helped my career tremendously. So I'm here to, to say that um, they weren't threatened by me because the men knew that I had no chance in hell of ever taking any of their jobs. So that wasn't the case. But the white women knew that there was probably one job opening coming in the C-suite for that woman. And that white woman will do anything to get that job. And I mean anything. And so that is, the, and so I constantly, I think I talked about it in my book, the code switching, the walking on eggshells, you know, trying to please these folks, trying to make them comfortable, let them know I'm not a threat. You know, all of that stuff is something I and I actually still do it unconscious, unconsciously. And I don't even recognize it until I, you know, I remember one time my son said to me, he heard me talking on the phone and he goes, that didn't even sound like you. Mm -hmm. And so I, I paused for a second and I realized I had gone into corporate Cindy mode because I'm trying to sell business and I'm doing so. I can't sound like an angry black woman. I can't talk uh, the way that I talk, you know, when I'm not on camera, there's just a whole nother life that we as black women live to, to be successful. And is it fair? No. I mean, I've been called out. I've been called out on that behavior by other black women who have said, you're making it harder on us when you continue to do that 
a woman was on my show told me that on air. And really, really, yeah. Wow. And she, right, you know, I, I, and she said it right before the break, my break. And then I had a three minute break, and my mind was like, Shh. and so I came back and I said, I want to talk about that. And so she said to me, you know, Cindy, when you do that, you're making it work. These, we're these, we're out here fighting to not have to do this. And so I, and I just said to her, that feedback is well-received because she was absolutely right. That is what I have been forced to do to survive. Something else that I did want to touch on with you, uh, and this is something that I have heard uh, numerous times called into question. You point out in the book that there is no such thing as reverse racism. And this is such an important point. Can you talk about why? Racism is about power and access. That's what racism is. Let, let's look across the country. It's about who's got the political power, who's got the earning power. That's that, who has power and who has access to it. Cannot claim that they are being discriminated against or there's racism to them when brown and black people don't have that access or power. We're fighting for power. We're fighting for access. We're fighting for fair wages. So therefore, when we call out what's happening, that is not racism. That is simply that you're uncomfortable with the fact that we're shining a light on you. Racism is about constructing systems, which is in place, that eliminates people being able to get into those seats, being able to have that earning power, being able to earn equity in a company, being able to um, run for a state representative position after 30 years uh, because I was not married to a white man and could get appointed into a seat like the white people do, right? They don't understand racism because they're so steeped in whiteness because everything has been constructed for their success. And so, look, you know, I, I, that's how I would describe it to you. That, that, that to me is why there is no such thing as reverse racism. And, you know, looking at projections about when, um, you know, census data, the browning of America, I mean, it's going to be 25 more years before it's even a 50-50 split. I mean, I don't know that that's an accurate number, but I, I want to say I saw the year 2045 on. It's coming. Yes. So when, um, when white people, so here's another example, because I had, I was talking to a local realtor and her, she was, her friend came in and she was talking about the fact that her husband just didn't get this job because he works for Microsoft because they promoted this Asian woman, but he was more qualified. And so he felt discriminated against. And so I called her on it and I said, who made the decision about who's qualified or not? Right. And she was like, well, he said he did. And I said, well, look, um, he can't cry foul. When I look at Microsoft's diversity numbers, y'all are centuries away from ever having equitable people having opportunity, access and opportunity. He was not discriminated against. He was told no. And white people don't know how to be told no. And so he felt very put off by it because he lost out on a job to an Asian woman Welcome to our life that, you know, I'm up here working for white CEOs who are holding standards to black people, true story, wanting people to come in with MBAs and uh, high level degrees and finance degrees and all that. And my CEO of that, that business, I actually pulled this out of the book. This man went to a division two school uh, with a two point something grade point average and 
majored in sociology and running a profitable financial services business. And when I highlighted the hypocrisy in the white guys coming in uneducated and unqualified, but we don't call that out, but we want to call out when a woman comes in and she's got way more. And so this is the stuff that goes on every single day. And white men definitely do not know how to be told no. They just don't. They're, look, we just saw for the first time in our life, my lifetime, a, a cop get held accountable for a murder that everybody saw with their own two eyes. And we still had to go through that to prove that he actually did it. And then he still appealed it and still wants, you know. No, I mean, that, that's a perfect illustration. And, and in fact, I was also thinking about, you know, uh, some of the lesser qualified people that we've had holding uh, elected office uh, as well. And I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And I really thank you for for articulating that point. One of the most powerful changes that you call for in the book, I think, is the change in corporate philanthropy, um, because it almost never focuses on communities, communities of color. There's always some sort of pet project, but it's never uh, places where the, the, the impact could really be substantial. I'll just ask you point blank. What are some of the changes that you would like to see in corporate philanthropy? Um, I would say, you know, some of the statistics I share in the book, first off, the many of the uh, nonprofit organizations that serve brown and black people, and I say serve in quotation marks, are led by white women. So let's just start with even in our own communities and service, we still have to give the woman, the white woman, the CEO title. And I've in fact asked one on air on my show, if she didn't have the CEO title, would she actually still be at that nonprofit? And she couldn't answer the question because white women want all the power. But they also get access to corporate dollars. The Black-led organizations are getting a much smaller percentage of corporate philanthropy dollars. And what I call for, um, what I talk about in my book is a couple things. One is the fact that our education system in this country is has failed brown and black kids. Our education system has become a prison pipeline. And I had a candidate on my show um, in this last primary election who was running for the school board in Tacoma who gave just a chilling story about the cops being in elementary schools. And so when that system, the public education system is propelling black kids into jail and, and black kids are being disciplined disproportionately compared to white kids, again, another system, I'm calling for corporate America to start investing into alternative schools, into charter schools, into other ways of helping it. This is their this is their talent pool and this is a global economy and you're not look we have elected representatives who have been on my show who have made comments about not everybody's a deep thinker translation and how i heard it is black kids are not smart enough and that is being propelled there's a whole chaos going on in the bellevue school district right now and so we have a problem we're to, from my perspective we're at a crossroads on education because i totally believe in public education but public education is not serving brown and black kids. Our graduation rates are low. The legislators now, some of them are trying to lower graduation standards. That's ridiculous. They're setting kids up to not succeed in the world later on. And so I don't, you know, they're like, well, Cindy, everybody doesn't need a college education. Well, 
This is true. However, if you have been black and you've been in business, you know good and damn well that black people are held to different standards when it comes to open doors to having access into opportunities. And so I'm a believer, like if you look in my background, those are Stanford plaques. I made damn sure my son got himself educated because I did not want him to have to face the wrath of what these organizations are doing and saying to brown and black people. And so I believe there should be a heavier investment. I believe that we should start having these nonprofits led by black people. Um, I, I have been out visiting different schools and looking at what is happening to try to help Russell and Sierra start stood up a, a charter school. You're talking about uh, Russell Wilson, the uh, quarterback of the, uh, the Seahawks. The, the black community sees it. Like our kids are just being, you know, carted off to prisons. They're, we're not getting our kids educated. And so, you know, looking at where public dollars go, you don't want to invest into these other choices. What are parents supposed to do? Like white families who are wealthy can afford to remove their kids out of the school system and give them private education, uh, you know, to make sure their kids advance. Why can't black children have the same options? Why are we just constantly, and then why are we taking our tax money and putting it into the same freaking broken system that is not fixing the problem? So I, we need, if, if it's not a charter school, then come up with an option C, but the status quo of corporate America's minimal dollars into uh, black and brown communities, um, just to be able to come and say, they're not smart, can't think, can't do math, blah, blah, blah. They're in we gotta ch we have to disrupt this system, period. And so I'm calling for a disruption of it. Uh, you know, as we close, as I mentioned in your intro, you ran for office. And I'm wondering how you think about public policy in terms of everything we've just talked about. Um, in particular, how public policy might be enacted to make corporations act in a more equitable way. I mean, we've seen corporations like Amazon, for example, flaunt things like the head tax that was imposed by the Seattle City Council. Do you think policy can make a difference here? I absolutely do. And I actually think it's necessary because I don't think corporate is going to change on its own. I'll just start right there. Um, nothing that is happening in our country is happening proactively on behalf of corporate America uh, in the news today, right? I mean, we have climate change. It, 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 the, we, our state has been fighting for this. Our governor has been fighting for uh, climate change. No one wants to hear it until it's at the 11th hour because, oh, by the way, we want to keep corporate America wealthy by, you know, gas and emissions and all the stuff that's keeping the white guys wealthy. Um, so we're going to have to force it. And um, if you, they won't come to the table willingly, uh, you know, I've been reading, I read the threats of business pulling out of Seattle, but then in today's paper, I see, you know, our favorite Amazon company is now putting 12,500 more jobs here in the Seattle area, moving into Bellevue, into my neighborhood. Ain't that going to be interesting to watch, uh, when they move over and start to watch the ripple effect of paying people $12 and 50 cents an hour and paying no income tax to support our infrastructures here in the state. So yes, we've got to get some policies in place so that first off, we've got to turn this tax system around. Uh, we've got to make these corporations start to paying their share of it. And they, that's a, 
from my perspective, it's a moral and a social responsibility when you're doing business in a community that you put those dollars in and not just tax write-off dollars, right? We're not just charity. Start investing into the success of other people and stop looking at brown and black communities like we're just looking for a handout. We are not. We're looking for a hand up. We're tired of paying their taxes. I'm tired of paying more business taxes than Jeff Bezos. I don't feel like watching him fly to the moon when people are dying in the streets. Like so, We've just lost our consciousness when it comes from a business perspective. And I'm not anti-business. I run a business. I'm just saying there is an equitable way that everybody can prosper. And so we have got to start thinking different. And how much do you actually need? I mean, Whew. Am I preaching, Stefan? You know, <laughs> I'll sing as a choir. Absolutely, I'm agreeing with everything that you're saying, 100. percent Yeah. Well, so let me just ask you this. So, in in addition to everything that you do, of course, you're now uh, a published author. What's next for you? That is a really good question. <laughs> I have been really. Um, I took the month of August off, technically. Um, the one project I'm working on, I've already mentioned about you know, the compensation. I want to equip the consumers with information and data and power to be able to have conversations um, to negotiate for themselves. Um, but I'm not quite sure. I would say that I have not ruled out running for office again. Uh, that floats through my mind often, although I'm not interested um, in the, um, the process that the the local Democrats have in place for people to come in. I'm not about to play their stupid games of, um, I have to be on the city council for 10 years. I'm 57 years old and I'm not going to start with their, their definition of succession. So I have ideas about where I think I could be, but I just don't know. I haven't pulled that trigger yet. So I've been noodling over that. Um, but I have a business and it's doing well. My radio show is doing really well. And I enjoy uh, lifting up and amplifying the, particularly the black women voices that are, are coming through uh, to give them uh, airtime and so that our communities can see who these women are. Um, so that's all I can say right now. I'm, I'm not talking in code. I just don't really know kind of the next move yet. I just kind of wait. I'm just kind of waiting and seeing what starts to um shake itself out in my life. I hope you'll keep us posted. And I just have to say, you have um, a few years on me. Uh, I'm 53. I hope that I look as good as I as, as you do when I'm 57. My God. I don't know what you're <laughs> there's, there's, there's one term, uh, Stefan, the old term is black, don't crack, but the one I'm using is beige, don't age. And so <laughs> <laughs> I'm lucky that I have that melanin in my skin. So that's good news about that. But. Oh, my God. I always love talking to you. The book is Color of Courage, available where you buy books. And, of course, you can check out uh, Cindy on Heartbeat Radio. I'll have information for both of those things in the show notes and at indivisiblepodcast.org. Cindy Bright, as always, my friend, such a pleasure to talk to you. Yes, it's a pleasure to talk to you, too. Thank you for being open to the conversation. I never know when people reach out and want to talk to me about it. I'm like, I don't know how far I can go with them, but... Um, I know I can go far with you. So thanks for having me on and letting me speak this truth to power out there. So grateful, grateful you did. Thank you. Okay. Talk to you soon. 
And that'll do it for this week. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. The website is indivisiblepodcast.org, and the email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to Lori Colwell, and as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.